it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We've published some great episodes in the month of December, including a rewatchables with Quentin Tarantino on Dunkirk. Sean Fennessy sat down with Greta Gerwig to talk about her new film, Little Women, on the big picture. And Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett appeared on the Bill Simmons podcast to talk about their newest film, Uncut Gems. Happy New Year from The Ringer. David, we're back. Pressbox is back. Yeah. What I want to know is, how did you spend your holiday vacation? <laughs> uh, finally, a question I can answer. Let's see. I uh, drove back and forth between New Jersey and Eastern Pennsylvania a number of times. Mm. Um, it's basically just like, you know, it, it, it feels it feels like sometimes it can feel like a pain in the ass, like packing up and getting out the door. But at some point you realize that this is basically the, like, the commute that many people in like the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex have to their jobs every day. So I'm not, you know, nothing to really complain about there. Um, uh, I celebrated my birthday. I won't disclose my age, um, uh, you know, it's impolite for you to ask. Uh, but uh, I, my, my birthday, my, uh, my baby son's birthday is the day after my birthday and his cousin's birthday uh, is the same as mine. So we had a triple bowling birthday party uh, at a bowling alley in New Jersey. Um, that was, uh, I don't know, might have been one of my favorite birthdays of all time. Probably, I guess it was my favorite, for sure, for sure. Don't disclose your birthday because then you'd be disclosing my age as well. <laughs> um, same here. Great Santa stuff under the tree. Lots of family time. Lots of Star Wars content as a family time leavened or offset i guess i should say by me staring at a computer and wondering why i can't write i mean that's just you know why don't i have the ability to make journalism so that's a always a potent holiday combination we are the chevy chase and beverly d'angelo of media podcasts this is the press box a part of the ringer podcast network media consumers you've got brian curtis and david shoemaker of the ringer back with you with our first show of 2020 lost and lots to get to today we'll talk about thursday night's events in iran we'll bid farewell to the presidential campaign of julian castro we'll bid a second farewell to radio host don imus and we've got a supersized bag of listener mail plus the overworked twitter joke of the week but David, I want to start here on January 3rd by looking back at the year in media. And here's the problem with doing this segment as I was jotting some notes down. How do we do this so that everything about 2019 in media doesn't sound completely apocalyptic? <laughs> I'm not sure we can. Maybe where's, we can the, where's the smiley face? Do, do we dare like end the segment by saying, but you know what? storytelling great storytelling will triumph at the end of the day fuck that i mean if 2019 taught us anything it's that that might not happen great storytelling great writing great reporting great website great whatever it is it might not crawl through the sewer pipe and this is the first year of my career and you know i've been doing this for couple of decades now where when I talk to young people, I could no longer sort of put up the front of it's going to be okay. 
we'll figure it out. I don't know how we're going to figure it out, but we as a media industry will figure it out. I, I couldn't say that this year. I really couldn't. And my answer when people said, is it going to be okay? Was, I don't know. What about you? I mean, <clears throat> I don't have any, I don't, I mean, I don't have any, you know, obviously data or inside info to, that would, I could say to make anyone feel any better about it. Um, I'm not sure if the, if the job, I, I, I feel comfortable that there will be jobs. I just don't know what they'll be. And I don't know if they'll be, you know, as plentiful, although there, you know, we could not have imagined, uh, you know, anybody, uh, I mean, any web property, Deadspin or um, anyone else employing the number of staff that they had 10 years ago. Right. So, I mean, it, there, there's those, the, the, the opportunities I think will continue. I just don't have any idea what they'll look like. Um, but I, but overall, I mean, it's hard to be hard to feel optimistic after 2019. Yeah. And is it like, it's, there's a headcount question, but there's also of like, how much will those jobs pay? Yeah. Are those going to be full-time jobs? Are they still going to be really, you know, good jobs? Are there going to be jobs that allow you to be a great writer and reporter, or is it going to be kind of a Maven style job? where mm -hmm. you're this kind of entrepreneur kind of doing your own bit for the company. Like I did a piece right at the end of the year on this guy in new Orleans, Josh Katzenstein, oh, yeah. really good reporter. He was a saints beat writer for the new Orleans times. Picayune had a sadly typical 2019 where his newspaper was basically swallowed by a competing newspaper in new Orleans. It still exists in name only, but it doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. So he lost his job. He was a really good reporter and the kind of guy who I think in a previous time of journalistic shittiness would have said, okay, what's my next gig? What do I do now? And when I went down there and hung out with him, he was selling CBD products because he didn't necessarily want to go get another newspaper job and have the same thing happen in six months or a year, you know? And I think, that began to happen more this year. People who saw themselves as journalists, who their entire, you know, professional sort of worldview was like, I am going to do this. I can't imagine doing anything else for a living. This last year was kind of the year they started imagining doing something else. Yeah. Um, I definitely think for the people who couldn't imagine doing anything else, that's been a real shift. So there's also always going to be, you know, some level of attrition to other careers. And I think, I mean, you know, at least from my personal experience in journalism and publishing in New York City, you know, there's 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 always going to be people who left to do other things, right? Who found who just found other lines of work along the way. And there's and I and I can definitely sympathize with looking around and feeling like there are people around me with a lot more career certainty ahead of them than than, you know, I or my even, you know, coworkers have just in a kind of general sense. But that said, yeah, this is definitely, uh, you, you could definitely sense a shift this year. And, and if they're, you know, we don't want to be in a brain drain situation for the, for the good of the, you know, journalistic, you know, community for the good of the country. I mean, the world for, you know, for the good of the readers and, and, and just in general, it's, it's really disheartening.
You mentioned Deadspin a second ago. Here's another very 2019 thing. Your favorite publication, your favorite, dare I say, journalistic brand gets taken over. It still exists, but it's not the same thing. (laughs) It's a zombie. It is, to use a word I tried to use earlier this year, it has been mavened. Mm -hmm. It has turned into something else. That happened a ton in 2019. We, We focus on like, Deadspin and Sports Illustrated because they're in the sports writing world and they were big national publications. But if you pick up a whole bunch of local newspapers in America, they've been mavened. They're the same name. Yeah. They come out mostly at the same frequency, but they're not what they were at all and they're not they're not even trying to be what they were because they're owned by companies that are trying to draw as much money as they can to squeeze as much money as they can out of subscribers who have a historical attachment to the paper or think they sub- should subscribe to the paper. And all they're doing is putting out something with that title. That's all that matters to them. So they can draw more money out and draw more money out. And to me, like when I think of this year, man, that just seemed to be, that just seemed to take over the journalism world to a crazy extent that I can't remember at any time in the past. Yeah. I mean, obviously there've been a lot of, you know, the Bain capitals of the world have been doing this sort of thing with, with other industries and other, or other sorts of companies for a long time. Um, but it does just reach this sort of like, just endpoint of inanity in, in newspaper publishing when, yeah, I mean, it, of course, anybody could look at. I mean, anybody could look at the the state of a newspaper and say, like, the most profitable way, profitable way to go forward is to fire everybody and hope that all the old people subscribing don't don't don't. I mean, continue to renew their subscriptions out of habit, right? That's I mean, what yes, they've done. No, I know, I know. But you look at that, and you're but but no one can see that. I mean, no one should be able to see that and say, like, that makes that. I mean, no one should be able to. No one thinks should think that makes any sense, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like it's it's. You know, it's it's cutting off the nose despite the face, right? I mean, it's it, the fact that that's anybody's idea of a way forward is just it's sort of mind boggling. But I guess if it's, all you're trying to do is a, repackage the asset, then maybe that makes sense. I don't. That's what it is. It, it's it's a good way forward if you don't give a shit about either news or the newspaper. I went back to Fort Worth in October. Fort Worth, Texas, our old stomping grounds for the annual Texas Oklahoma football game which is a gigantic sporting event in North Texas. I pick up the Fort Worth Star-Telegram the next day, and they had AP wire copy for the game. This is 30 miles away. AP wire copy. Yeah. And I'll tell you the problem with when, when you have your local publication gets hollowed out like that. What do you do? Because... You know, your first instinct, I think, if you if you like journalism, love journalism like we do, is I'm going to I'm going to support journalism. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, get out my credit card and subscribe. Guess what? You're giving money to the bad guys. The bad guys are going to take your money, but they're not going to make the newspaper any better. Right. In fact, they're probably going to make it worse. So you're screwed there. You go, okay, I won't do that. I'm going to give my money to someone else who. Who is going to cover Fort Worth, Texas, like the Star-Telegram did? Who's going to cover pick any city in America? There's nowhere to go. 
right? I can go to the athletic and get that sports news that, that I, that I was missing, but where am I going to get it all in one place? Where am I going to get all that other good stuff? That's going to tell me you, you can't. So they've put people who want to help and want to do the right thing. And again, I said, like I say, want to put their money where their mouth is in this terrible position, man. And that is that part of this whole process is to me in a way, the most maddening and the craziest, like, what do we do if you're in that position? Yeah. I mean, what is the next generation? I mean, sorry to make this sort of, you know, about the, about the children out there, but I mean, what, what is the next generation of journalists going to do when they, when they say, Oh, maybe I want to write for a newspaper someday. And then they pick up the newspaper and realize that none of it's written by anybody within a thousand miles of them. Right. I mean, it's, um, it's, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, it used to be that for nonprofits, you would, you know, or, or, or this sort of, you know, an organization you really want to support you, you're right. You would take out your, your checkbook. You would, you would donate. You would, maybe you would make a, maybe you would pledge a 10 year subscription or something like that, you know? And, but that's, again, that's, that's the opposite of what you can do because all it's doing is putting money in the pocket of people that don't care about what you're, what you're buying. Um, mm-hmm. It, it's it's uh it's sad to say i just, I just don't even it, it's hard to imagine what the what the way out of this is i mean it's i mean frankly it's hard to imagine that i mean that anybody thought this was a good gambit but i guess it's working out for somebody out there who's trying to you know multiply pennies or whatever <laughs> here's one more bit of terrible news from 2019 i don't even know if this was a 2019 thing but it occurred to me more in 2019 because i'm slow which is that it's become really, really hard to make people, even people that are sympathetic to the media, understand why capital J fully employed, quote unquote, professional journalists are important. Once again, drawing from my own experience here, my uncles, whom you know, are huge Dallas Cowboy fans. They love the Dallas Cowboys. They send me two kinds of articles about the Cowboys when they email them to me. One is from blog aggregation services and the other is from dallascowboys.com so (laughs) they are not supporting the kind of sports writers the kind of professional newspaper people athletic people that we're talking about they're not doing that and they're not anti-mainstream media in some kind of trumpy way they just don't see the point of it because they're like well i just go to all these random things and I find everything that I need. So why would I do anything differently? And to sit down and explain to them, no, no, you need to send a credit card payment into the Dallas morning news every month or the athletic, or by the way, we could do this with political news. You can do with whatever you want. It's really hard because there's just so much stuff out there. Yeah. I don't even know how to, I wouldn't even know how to make the case. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Um, when when deadspin shut down that i was um you know looking at i mean i deadspin and, and then and also splinter news before that same parent company same silly you know get keep politics out of my uh out from in front of my face philosophy um and 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 immediately in the in the aftermath of those sites disappearing you kind of like literally the next day you go in and you might type DE into your browser window or you might, you know, whatever you, 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 you seek it out. But 
it was, I was kind of surprised with how quickly I forgot. I mean, I stopped trying to check, you know, I kind of thought that I'd be doing that over and over again, muscle memory or mental muscle memory for, for weeks and months. Um, that certainly was, that's what would have happened if, you know, what name the website from 15 years, if, you know, if, if salon.com or slate.com had disappeared 15 years ago, I would probably still be typing those into my browser window today, trying to figure out what happened, you know, trying, trying to just get my local dose of bloggy news. Um, but I think that we've, we're in a different place now that, that when things disappear because of the volume of, of information that you talk about, um, you find other outlets really, really quickly. And that's to say nothing of the fact that as we know, working from the, you know, on the inside of digital media, that so much traffic is driven not by the homepage, uh, but by, you know, Facebook and Twitter and everything else, that mm -hmm. uh, it, it literally doesn't matter what the outlet is that produced the, the content. It doesn't matter who wrote it. It almost doesn't matter what the content is. It doesn't matter if the headline matches the story. What matters is that, you know, you, you click through. And from a reader's perspective, it, I mean, it's hard. I, 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 I think you're right when saying it's impossible to explain to somebody um, you know, what the value of journalism is. Because it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's like when you're, I mean, you, you have two beautiful kids. It's like when you're raising a young child, you can't explain to them why they're not allowed to do certain things until they're, you know, well into their teens. You just have to say no. And then eventually, because, because otherwise the explanation won't make, you know, because the, because the repercussion is so far down the road, they don't have the ability to wrap their heads around that. And that's sort of the situation that we're in uh, that 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 you describe, and that like, like, yeah, you might not you might not know that like all the blog posts that you're reading are just empty calories. You might not, I mean, but but someday you're going to wake up and you're going to be like, I used to like to read these things, and there's literally nothing to read anymore. You know, there's nothing, <laughs> there's, nothing there's there's nothing of substance. Right. The guys and gals that supplied these blog posts with material don't have jobs anymore. Right. Or there's only one of them instead of three of them, and that's bad. I guess if, if I have to tack on a smiley face to 2019, um, and it's related to that point, you and I are both people who make this stuff. And I think even more so we'll, we're people that consume and read this stuff. Given everything we've said, is it possible that at any point in recorded history, it was a better time to be a news consumer than it is right now? <laughs> even with that hollowed out local newspaper, even with everything I just said, Look, look at, look at the feast before you when you fire up your web browser, or pick up your phone, look at all the shit you can read, look at all the stuff you can learn. Yep. And, and again, that's, it just goes back to that's, that's what's so hard to explain to people. How do we tell them journalism is in crisis when, when they look and say, well, my reading's not in crisis. My reading looks great. I could read 900 stories about Iran today. So many explainers, so many more than I could read 20 years ago for free. So you're telling me that journalism is in crisis? Um, it's funny, but again, as a consumer, you know, we can read stuff from all over the world. We can read more and more and more. The New York Times is hiring every political writer on the planet. The Atlantic is hiring every other political writer on the planet. Yeah. Look at all this shit. I don't know that 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 was supposed to be the happy ending, but I, I'm not sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was the ironic happy ending. Um, I'm, I want to time capsule this conversation so we can have it in 2020 because I either we're either going to have 
we're either going to truly be grim or we're going to look back and laugh and say, remember when we thought we were all doomed? We, we discovered the secrets of digital advertising in 2020. So it's, it's all better now. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, in a series of tweets, former President Barack Obama listed his favorite books, movies, and TV shows of this past year. One of the latter was Fleabag, appeared on a lot of top 10 lists. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, not enough people are talking about how this means that Obama definitely knows that Fleabag opened with Phoebe Waller-Bridge masturbating to him. Thanks to Hugh Hartzog for that. Amazing story out of Junction City, Kansas, David. A police officer from nearby Harrington, Kansas, walks into a McDonald's, buys a cup of coffee. The officer claims the McDonald's workers wrote fucking pig on the side of the cup. Posts a picture on social media. (laughs) Turns out to have been a hoax. McDonald's workers did no such thing. And the police officer resigned. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write blue lie shattered. Blue lie shattered. Yeah. Thanks to Andrew Whitlock. And finally, on the matter of Julian Castro withdrawing from the presidential campaign. I don't think this tweet was overworked exactly, but it was really funny. Are you ready? Okay. Pete Buttigieg is now the only member of the CIA to best a Castro. <laughs> oh my God. If you took the Buttigieg CIA rumor to its logical endpoint, congrats. You made the not overworked, but really funny Twitter joke of the week. David in the notebook dump a quick word on Iran. On Thursday night, we learned that the U.S. had authorized an airstrike that killed Iranian Major General Qasim Soleimani in Baghdad. Soleimani, whom the New York Times calls the spy master at the head of Iran's security machinery, and who was classified as a terrorist by the United States, was a huge political figure in Iran. You and I are not going to sit here and pretend to be experts on Middle Eastern politics or make predictions about what this means. I do want to bring up what's about to happen in the media, because we are going to have this big debate, and we already are on Twitter last night, about what the U.S. should do and the role of the U.S. in the world. It's going to be really different, isn't it, from the one in 2003 when we were talking about invading Iraq? I just like, is that kind of consensus, foreign policy consensus, as it turned out, totally wrong-headed consensus, even possible now in the age of Twitter in the age of everything. I mean, think back to just how many people lined up on, on the invasion bandwagon back then. I mean, you might even take Trump out of it. How do you see that being a different conversation than it was almost two decades ago? I think two decades ago, there was a sense of inevitability um, attached to almost everything in politics. And I think that what you've seen over and over again since then is a reaction to that, right? And part of that is is uh, 
you know, dissatisfaction with the way that our, our, you know, the voters don't feel like their votes are counting or, or, or that their, that their elected leaders are responding to their preferences, but also in the age of social media, like nothing feels like everything, nothing feels inevitable. I mean, maybe it is, and maybe it still is just as inevitable uh, when the wheels of war start turning, but um, it definitely feels like with the proliferation of media, I mean, I mean, I mean, information throughout through social media, and also with the amplification of like individuals' voices that way, it does feel like, like it would be hard for, you know, a march to war, to to go, to sort of, you know, go in the same route that it did all that, you know, not that long ago. Yeah, I was reading an old David Carr column from twenty two thousand three. This is how it starts. This has been a tough war for commentators on the American left. To hope for defeat meant cheering for Saddam Hussein. To hope for victory meant cheering for President Bush. And he's talking about how like how tough it is to be anti-war and in the media. Mm-hmm. I don't want to argue that we're in this. We've hit this nirvana of, um, you know, anti-warism at the moment, but. It just it just it just feels like the the chessboard is totally different. Like we're not ruled by political journals like we were in two thousand and three. I don't know exactly how different the editorial pages of the newspapers really are. Seem probably pretty similar. Mm-hmm. But it just feels like there's just much more of an outlet. Well, the curtain is thrown back in so many different ways, right? I mean, that twenty years ago we didn't know. I mean, of, of course, there were there were names, you know, in, in the Bush White House that we could attach various, uh, you know, stances to. But it wasn't the same way that we feel like we know and understand John Bolton or Susan Rice or Samantha Power, you know, all these like these foreign policy, you know, advisors that have really distinct points of view from that, sometimes from the people that employ them. Um, and, you know, the fact the idea that there'd be dissension or, you know, just you know, healthy disagreement, um, I think makes, makes it more feasible. I mean, it make, makes it easier for the average person to understand the options. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, without it, like in the, the absence of, you know, foreign policy magazines, as you said, it sounds sort of laughable, but it's not a small thing, right? I mean, all, there's no. so much, and in, in their, in their way, and listen, Far be it from, I mean, it's definitely, definitely not, I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying those magazines were apolitical, far, uh, the, just the opposite, right? I mean, they had very, they were steeped in, in a very, usually a very particular political mindset, but usually the, the politics was driven by foreign policy. And you often, know, yeah. it was often driven by, or the, the, the political, the political uh, mindset was, you know, stemmed from doctrinaire foreign policy positions, you know, a lot of the time. Now I think now I think it's the reverse where everything's being driven driven by politics and I don't and and people say that all the time and I, I don't I don't want to just you know repeat that sort of canard but um and listen there, and there have been wars and military operations that were that were a hundred percent for politics in the past that don't and that's that's certainly nothing new um, but it does feel like everything we're looking at now is through I mean this entire it. it whatever happens with Iran will be viewed through the lens of politics. And no matter what happens, um, you know, Republicans will be lining up on, on uh, news television to support 
the president's actions for the most, I would say, you know, for the most part and Democrats, the, the opposite. And it's not, it's just a different world. I'd also say it's a more opinionated world, right? And part of the reason those journals we're talking about had such cachet was that the media wasn't as voicing and opinionated as it is now. So that just changes it too, right? Cable news wasn't as built out as it, as it is now. It was beginning to get there. Um, you know, Twitter didn't exist. Um, I think a lot, almost every publication now just has a lot more opinion in it generally. So yeah, I'm just, I'm again, this is just to raise the question because it kind of hasn't happened yet. We'll probably do another segment on it at some point, but I'm just, I'm just so interested how a, a debate about war or American aggression happens in 2019, in 2020, excuse me, here we are versus 2003. Can I talk to you a bit about the Castro campaign, David? Oh, yeah. On Thursday, former HUD secretary and San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro dropped out of the Democratic presidential race with some soaring music in the background. Here's a snippet of the farewell he released on Twitter. And given a voice to those who are often forgotten. But with only a month until the Iowa caucuses, and given the circumstances of this campaign season, I've determined that it simply isn't our time. So today it's with a heavy heart and with profound gratitude that I will suspend my campaign for president. Castro was at a little over 1% nationally in the real clear politics polling average, about half that in Iowa. He hadn't been in any debates since November. But his campaign feels a little bigger than just hard numbers, I think. How do you think you'll remember Castro for president? Oh, God. I don't know. I mean, his campaign does feel different than the campaigns of some of the others that have, you know, that have closed up shop and that, that seemed like there was great potential for them at some point. I don't know quite how to put it into words. I think that I, I really like Julian Castro. Um, just about every performance he gave in a debate, I, I thought was was good. His campaign speeches, I thought, were, I mean, were, were strong. His policy positions were, uh, you know, he, he found ways to differentiate himself. And, and while I didn't agree with everything completely, I, I, I appreciated what he was, you know, what he was trying to do. But, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways. I, I, there's there's a, The postmortems for this Democratic primary will be really interesting. Whoever writes the big book on it, I think, is, uh, you know, it, it's going to be a lot to a lot to take in. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know why, I don't know why it didn't work out for him. It's, it's impossible to say now. I mean, the stage certainly looks a lot different without him and Kamala Harris and some of the others up there. Um, but you know, I think that he had a, his claim to the Obama legacy. It was obviously drowned out by Joe Biden. Um, mm -hmm. his, his, I, I think that 2019, 2020, I mean, it's a rough time to run as a candidate who's, who had articles written about them for the past 20 years about how they're, they will be a future president. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's See I, Kamala Harris. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I don't, I, I don't know that that's, that really is a reason why those, these campaigns didn't work. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's a new, it, it, there did seem to be, it, it did seem like there, there would be more traction for his candidacy. And the fact that there wasn't, I think, is just more 
evidence that we're sort of in uncharted territories when it comes to this thing. That said, I guess that's that's not true because you look at the people who are left and it doesn't really look like uncharted territory up there on the debate stage. You know, it looks like very charted territory. Sometimes I think these campaigns don't work out and they just don't work out. Yep. You know, it just it just wasn't and I've seen a lot of people try to draw big big conclusions from him dropping out. I'll I'll totally if you want to talk about the even greater whiteness of the democratic nominees i'm with you if you want to talk about campaign finance i'm with you but there's also a part of this where you just sometimes you just don't get any traction and we, as we talk about with cory booker even amy klobuchar it just you just don't you know um i will remember as you said his debate performances ripping into beto o'rourke in june over decriminalizing border crossings ripping into biden in september are you forgetting what you what you said just two minutes ago. Interesting, Castro's favorability went way down when he attacked Biden. Liam Donovan made this point on Twitter yesterday. He says, clearly Castro had broader issues in terms of getting traction, but this is indicative of the dynamic that helps to insulate Biden. Nobody is willing to come at him directly lest they end up like Kamala Harris or Castro. Yeah. Other thing is that Castro really did, I think, help move this campaign in a progressive direction. Ryan Lizza Politico tweets, by far the greatest impact he had on the race was pushing the field on the issue of decriminalizing border crossings. He rolled out the plan in April, Warren liked it and adopted it, and most candidates were soon pushed to take a position. Could be a big issue in the fall. Castro uh, campaigned in Flint, Michigan, and Puerto Rico, right? Drawing attention to those communities. Dave Weigel tweets that Castro joins Washington Governor Jay Inslee as the only 2020 Democrats who ended their campaigns with elevated reputations. Castro shook off his image as an amiable lightweight and really moved the ball on immigration, impeachment, housing. Yeah. So there's that. I, I think that the, the point you were getting at about, I mean, talking about his debate performances and and how his favorability numbers went down, um, I think that's a really salient point. And I also think that, you know, it, it's it's tough to over it's it's tough to overstate how much how entrenched candidate these candidates get now by by their performance in the polls and i'll go back to the word i used in the first segment the inevitable the seeming inevitability of it right i mean it's it's um it's if if all we're looking at is polling numbers and joe biden comes in with a with all this huge name recognition unless i mean your only option is to get a huge bounce if you're not one of the top couple candidates your only option is to is to swing for the fences and go for just a ridiculous bounce coming out of the debate because otherwise what does what 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 interest does msnbc or fox news or cnn have in in talking about the plausibility of your campaign and if no one's if no one's discussing you as plausible um then you know that i mean honestly the, like the only path forward is like what trump did four years ago which is make himself so irresistible to to these television networks that that he created his own plausibility. Um, unless you're doing that, I don't know how you I don't I don't know how any campaign um, can rise above polling. Polling yeah. is supposed, it's supposed to be reflective of what the voters are doing, right? And it is. But now it also becomes this sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy. And all we cover is the sort of, you know, the circular the, the circular nature of the whole thing. I don't know. It's 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 disheartening. I'm with you on wanting to read the 
with the after action report here. I know the I know the game change series has been canceled, but I'd look forward to somebody who has all like I, I I'm not sure I really understand what's happened to Elizabeth Warren over the last month and change. I really don't. We've talked about some of the things that have happened. I don't understand why she's her fortunes have turned downward this apparently this sharply. But I'm eager to read the thing at the end because I think I think there's a lot of a lot of nuance here and a lot of this will be an interesting story to tell. Let us talk about Don Imus. Yeah. David, Don Imus died. And all the kind of newswired Twitter accounts were faced with the same problem. What do we call a guy with a significant body of content who is remembered not wrongly for a racist meltdown? I don't know if you noticed, it was at first on Twitter, it was legendary radio host Don Imus. And then it was controversial radio host. And finally, the consensus we came to is shock jock Don Imus dead at 79. Because shock jock is kind of both a compliment and a, you know, a reminder that there was bad stuff in there. If you've never heard Imus in the morning, here's a sample from 1994. You know what it irritates me about Stern, and I'll tell you what irritates me about David Letterman, too. And I, nobody's been a bigger supporter of Letterman for, since he came to New York, and he doesn't need my support. Oh, sorry I brought this up. No, but I mean, but he lets that punk, puts that punk on his television program and lets him talk about ripping me off, about me ripping him off. And I mean, that's so preposterous, it's just outrageous. And my only point is that, that, that even if he is a maggot, he still ought to be, you know, he still ought to be, ought to be able to say whatever he wants to say. And the FCC ought to, ought to get out of Infinity Broadcasting's uh, business. And the, and the essential point I made was that, it, that it, at Infinity, at least we're abiding by the law and the FCC isn't. So the biggest story recently on Don Imus, of course, was his comments in 2007 on the Rutgers women's basketball team. His racist comments on the Rutgers women's basketball team. Mm-hmm. Um, which was interesting because... Imus lost his MSNBC show in the wake of that. There was also, he lost his CBS radio show and then had to sort of come back in, in, in slightly different form. But I'm always amazed at how guys like him, and you could put Howard Stern in the same general category, kind of existed pre-cancel culture. Yeah. Like they, they, they said something cancelable basically every day or every other day Mm -hmm. and they existed in this weird zone where old media would get really flabbergasted and angry think to howard playing you know the reels of all the people saying this shock jock is saying terrible things but then they would just kind of keep going Mm -hmm. like they were there was just a spot carved out where it's oh well you know there was a meltdown okay uh, keep going. That's really weird to me to think back to that now. Yeah, I mean to 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 say something. I mean, I, I guess there's something. There are probably some things that a lot of, a lot of what they said or Don Imus said was probably is probably more offensive. Would seem more offensive now than it was at the time. And there's probably a lot, a lot of stuff that he said that would seem less offensive. Um, but it is hard to imagine that you no know, that anything that he said, you know, a world in which anything he said wasn't you know parsed out and broken down by soundbite and and, and published all over social media. Um, it, it was, it, it was a different world and, you know, he was able to, I mean, although he was literally canceled, he sort of avoided the fate, like you said, of cancel culture, um, right up until the end. Um, 
couple of notes about his show. One is, at least in later years, it seemed kind of weird that he was not necessarily the biggest character on his own show. <laughs> <laughs> You'd listen and you're like, is, is he is he talking? Or is it just Charles McCord and Bernard McGurk? Is he's I'm as is I'm as here? Um the kind of also the purposefully old fashionedness of the show. Yeah. The Imus in the morning program, I believe, is what he called it. <laughs> yeah. Um, those sort of cowboy outfits, which oh yeah, looked like they were from a completely different era. I saw some people saying, you know, Imus had these uh insulting and disgusting remarks on the show but in private he was big on charity i'm sorry the charity was on the show there would be whole shows devoted to fundraising for kids with cancer that was not that was not a that was not the private side of imus that was the public side of imus as well right he also interestingly had this big renaissance and i remember becoming aware of it in 1999 because there was this newsweek cover that i looked up the headline was the importance of being imus and he went from this guy who was pretty fully in the shock jock realm to a combination of proto morning Joe. And he was literally in the morning Joe time slot on MSNBC. Oh yeah. Combination of morning Joe and the Oprah Reese Witherspoon book club. (laughs) Remember that? I mean, he was like, he was like the guy who was telling you what to read. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. he was the guy on there saying, you know, you should read this uh, A. Scott Berg biography of Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> Maybe this is the time to interject that I was that I was on I Miss in the Morning uh, <laughs> like five years ago. I just still find that to be absolutely incredible. Promoting my book, The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. Um, it was certainly the highlight uh of my publicity tour well that are fox and friends but but just for the just ridiculous <laughs> wow. the whole situation they've um, been canceled by the way yeah. uh, <laughs> uh i gotta tell i mean it's the set for this i mean it's a tv set right you walk in expecting radio no matter how many times you've seen it on tv and and it's just a tv set so you're just it's a giant wallless fish tank my fish tank's the wrong word it's a giant wallless just arena of with like a table sitting in the middle and craned cameras hanging over your head. Um, and his absence was, was sort of what I remember most about it. Then he was there and he was, when we were on the air, he was, you know, the most vocal person, but during, but you know, in the commercial break leading up to the, the, the appearance, my appearance, he was, I, I was, I was, you know, marched out there, put in the chair. I'm about like 50 feet away from him across two giant tables. And he was just sitting there in complete silence until we went on the air. Other people kind of were tasked with making small talk with me. And it was, you know, a lot of the sort of like, why did you write this book? <laughs> you know, and like, what, what am I, why am I supposed to care? It, it seemed very much like he was surprised by my appearance and by the, you know, by the segment in general. But, um, but yeah, he was, uh, he was, um, I don't know if he was, you know, had any, it didn't seem like any particular interest in recommending my book to anyone, but I felt honored that he would allow me to come talk about the book in the first place. So, I mean, that's that you got the eye mistreatment. Uh, this is a book about professional wrestling. Why the, why the hell should I read a book about professional wrestling? I also just found like, so during that period we're talking about when he becomes Mr. Book, and Mr. Politics, you had that whole dynamic of 
your Evan Thomases and your Maring Dowds and your Margaret Carlsons, or people like that anyway, would come on there like on a near daily basis. And it was almost the same dynamic as Barstool, where he was daring them to say something terrible that would get them in trouble. And Washington, D.C. reporters, and man, I, I say this, some of my best friends are Washington, D.C. reporters, but these are the people who are most desperate in the world to be a part of the Cool Kids Club. Gosh, they want anybody who 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 is singling them out and saying, come out of your boring world and come into my slightly more dangerous world. They're going, yes, I am there. So they all agreed to this thing of going on this show with this guy who was saying terrible things, but they said yes, because they were getting a little bump out of it. They were selling books. They were doing it. And when the Rutgers thing came up, there was this whole parade of people. Will you apologize for, for being on IMAS? And oh well, you know that's the trade-off. You know, I liked what I liked what being on that show did for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the. I mean, it's it's it, it is. We discussed it. I think we talked about the Howard about Hillary on Howard Stern. Um, but you know, all of a lot of his interviews kind of took the same tact, where you kind of had to, or, or they they made the same turn, where you kind of had to apologize no matter what happened on the show. Um, it's a, it's. You know, I think that that foreshadowed a lot of, of what was to come in media. I'm not sure it's all for the for the for the good. Two more memories of Imus. 1996, he did the radio and television correspondence dinner, aka the White House correspondence dinner, uh, and just bombed. Like he was really not funny. Uh, thought he was just gonna gonna get Bill and Hillary, and it was like it was like. Michelle Wolf, but not funny. I mean, it was it was really bad. Uh, Nineteen ninety five, Senator Alphonse D'Amato from New York went on Imus and did a racist impression of Judge Lance Ito. That sentence, folks, might not sound like it makes sense. I I just invite you to look it up. Can you imagine, David, if some right wing media figure did that today? It'd be a huge deal. This was a sitting U.S. senator. Went on Imus. Did the did the thing. Let me take you a listener mail, David. Because we hit up everybody on Twitter and said, send us your end of the year questions. We got a bunch of them. This is from Andrew Brennan. Given listeners' affection for the opening, David, of each non-debate recap episode of the Press Box, would it be possible for Brian to record several other first names with the theme music? <laughs> to be used as custom ringtones. <laughs> I would pay at least 99 cents for Andrew. That's from Andrew Brennan. Um, Jim, can we, can we cue up the opening theme song, that lilting piano? Cause I've got a list here. I'm just going to read them. I'm not even in charge. Here we go. David, pick up a color teeny, David, sit back. Here we go. Andrew. Miranda. Ivanka, Todd, Rex, Cherry, <laughs> Jim. All right, if you didn't hear your name, we'll do it in, in January 2021. Thanks to Andrew for that. 
Got another one, Dave. From this is from Filthy Mouthed Wife Guy. Love your name. Uh, he asks, "What media sources do you guys pay for?" That's a good question. I'll let you go first. Oh man, what do I pay for? Speaking of the end of media, I pay for um, the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Does that count? That's, yeah. that's journalism. Uh, I pay for. Um, I mean, I feel like I pay for cable, which gets me just about all the TV and internet reading I could. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, I'm not, it's not even cable. It's. A, I mean, I, a cable service over the internet. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I. If I. I don't know if I have any like ongoing print magazine or newspaper subscription. Oh, the New York Times, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. Washington Post. Uh, I think that's it for newspapers. Um, and I don't think I have, I'm trying to think, I don't think I have any existing magazine subscriptions, although I must be wrong. There mu- there's no physical magazines coming to my house anymore. I'm trying to think what I just am still getting charged 10 bucks a year. <laughs> if there's anything out there. I don't even know. Isn't it funny when you make this list of one is like, I'm pretty sure I subscribe to stuff and don't remember. Mm-hmm. And also I'm pretty sure my partner subscribes to stuff. Yeah. And I might also subscribe to that thing. Cause we just didn't tell each other. Right. <laughs> my list is the New York times on paper, which is probably more than I pay for anything else in a calendar year. Like the literal, like I guess a car payment or something that is li- literally my biggest expenditure of the year. And I love it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, Washington post online. The Athletic, Airmail, Rivals.com, because who doesn't need the latest University of Texas football news? Wow. And SiriusXM because Los Angeles and because traffic. Yeah. But, and I'm sure there's more. Like I said, I'm sure there's two or three magazines that are coming to like uh, our old apartment in Brooklyn that I have no idea exist anymore. <laughs> um, This is for David from the Mexican Delegation. Which wrestler has the best shot of getting elected to public office without breaking kayfabe? Oh, my God. So do I explain the question? Can I just let me do the short version. A wrestler stays in character, stays in his wrestling character. Which one would have the best shot at being elected to public office in the United States? Presumably in the United States. Um. I mean, I think the the answer in or out of kayfabe is John Cena. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly more so than The Rock in terms of kayfabe. I mean, I think John Cena could could general could could the character of John Cena not too different from the real person John Cena, and could probably uh, could probably probably has the Q rating to to pull it off. Um, but if you want to go historical, I mean, listen, I think Hacksaw Jim Duggan bringing the uh, two by four and the American flag to the ring. Um, I, 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 I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be too funny. Although I guess I am when I say that, like, I could see him winning a debate with just a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of thumbs up and a, and a hoe here or there. He, I think, I think of, of, you know, the rest of my childhood, he might have the best shot. I don't know. Can you think of anybody from our, from our youth? There's there, is there any like, like the all American Lex Luger certainly would not have gotten it done. <laughs> He's dead now. But I would love to have read the headline, Davy Boy Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> I don't think that would have been legal, but still, that would that would be fantastic to watch. You know, you can be pre- you can't be president, right? But you can be you right. Can be yeah, he could, he could win something else. J- Jim is suggesting Sergeant Slaughter. Oh, I I think the era of the uh, electable general is past. But but Sergeant Slaughter, 
if it hadn't been for that false step he had, you know, endorsing Iraq during the uh, <laughs> Operation Desert Shield, uh, he, he, he might really stand a chance. Yeah, and this whole Iran debate, a lot of people are saying, why should we listen to the people who uh, led us into war with Iraq in 2003? Why, why are we listening to Sergeant Slaughter? Why, is he, why hasn't he suffered the same fate as the neocons? This is one more, David, from Dan Perricone. And I love this one. And I, I think I'm, I know exactly where we're going to go with it. What's your favorite guys from Texas just moved to New York story? Oh, man. Do you have an answer for this? Okay. You and I were not what we would call big cultural Texans when we were there in the sense that we were not, you know, we didn't have a huge brush guard on our F-150. We, you know, didn't have Alan Jackson tapes and George Strait tapes just falling out of the, the car radio. But when we moved to New York, we cultivated this kind of Texanness at a distance. Sure. And for a year, two years, you and I wore almost nothing but cowboy shirts. Oh, yeah. The ones with like the those like pearl buttons and everything. <laughs> and a car like Carhartt jackets and all that stuff. We looked like Don Imus walking the streets of the Lower East Side. I hope it doesn't betray too much to say that when Brian, I, I moved to New York. Let's see. I, I left tech. Brian left Texas before me. We both kind of like took her took turns like moving. But I ended up in New York about 10 months before Brian got there. And when um. And when he arrived, we got an apartment together. He arrived at our new apartment. I guess I had already moved in. And Brian was wearing a was wearing khaki shorts and an undershirt and sandals. He had just spent a year working on the Microsoft campus at Slate.com and basically <laughs> said, this is, I've been wearing this every day. I need some clothes. Where do I go? I look like Mark Zuckerberg in that Sweet Baby Ray's clip that they always play. Anyway, go ahead. So yeah, so we had that. That's not like just the Texas fish out of water thing, but yeah, we had to go. That that's when we went to got to buy the first round of uh, of Western shirts. And what were we doing? Because I remember you and I would go to party. We were basically inseparable at that point. Like if we went to if one of us went to a party, the other one was at the party. Uh huh. And we'd walk in like two rhinestone cowboys, and I just remember friends who'd known us for a while would just come up to one of us and be like, "I didn't really know you guys had kind of gone Western, you know? Like you had." <laughs> I didn't even realize this shows you how much I knew. I didn't even realize we were dressed alike. I thought as long as we were in different colored Western shirts and our coats were different colors and we weren't dressed alike, you know? And then, and then I remember at some point someone pointing out that we had the same outfit on. I was like, what do you mean? Oh, okay. I see now. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, I thought that I, I, it was a good look. I stand by it. You know? We were, we were rocking Texas for sure. Uh, that's our favorite guys from Texas just moved to New York story. There's also a part of like the Texas culture and Southern culture in general has followed us here or, or was, you know, was sitting here waiting for us. I've definitely eaten more Southern food or probably eaten more Southern food, you know, generally broadly defined, but definitely eaten more barbecue in New York than I ever did in Texas or the South. Um, and, and, you know, Western shirts were a thing and we didn't just like, you know, have those imported from, from the South, you know, from, from Laredo. <laughs> sold by the rack road at like you know the, the the vintage clothing store that everybody everybody and their mom was going to back then so you know i, th I think that i think that it's there, there's a defense okay there's some defense there's some defense but a pretty dismal uh sartorial period in our lives all right time for david shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline all right 
Last week's headline about a family that found an owl in a Christmas tree they bought from Home Depot was Owl Come All Ye Faithful. <laughs> Literally every reader said it should have been Owl Be Home for Christmas, which was way better and more on point. Our first headline of 2020, David, comes from Chris Gorski. It's from the current issue of the medical journal called Sports Health, a multidisciplinary approach. We love when the writers of medical journals try to channel Esquire in the 60s. Yes. I'm going to read you the subheadline, David. Quote, magnetic resonance imaging findings after surfing injuries. Magnetic resonance imaging findings after surfing injuries. So I want you to focus on surfing injuries. Surfing injuries that would require an MRI. What was sports health a multidisciplinary approaches strained pun headline? It's got to be something with wipeout, right? Hmm. You close? What some other? What some other surfing terms? Um, hang ten. Um, uh, hang loose. Hmm. What is what is the what is the wave? do uh when you're out, out there, there surfing, surfing. The, um what is the word don't, don't, I, don't, I, don't I, I sound like i live in wave do is it like crest or crown or something mm. like that? Mm. Uh, mm. Make, mm, different slightly different verb break 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 uh oh yeah like a break um them's the breaks when the wave breaks you <laughs> Uh, I like them's the breaks better. They're having some fun over there at Sports Health, a multidisciplinary approach, aren't they? They sure are. That's the most fun they've had in years. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis, researched by Chris Almeida, production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Tuesday on our usual schedule. More lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, man. you were dead <laughs> gone after one year i don't think they were being dishonest or anything but they certainly made it seem like a bigger deal than in my mind it really was mm-hmm. david oh my god i like post malone i like drake i like bieber i'm a fan of all these people oh my god everybody freaks out i'm sure there's a drudge headline about it every single time um, Who is buying the Betty White special issue of Parade Magazine? You know, the... And parades the secret worlds of cats and dogs. I mean, if you're going to draw a line, you draw a line. Sex, money. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just it's just totally different than um, somebody who is covering the Mets as a beat writer. You know, that's not ideal, but that's not a moral catastrophe. You're coming to me. I'm not coming to you. You're coming David! Mm-hmm. This is the moment... Whether we're going to win or lose everything. Yes. Let's put on the blue shirt. Oh, yeah. If we got in the time machine right now. There's no better spot for a disgraced liberal to go. What a world. Yeah, that occurred to me. I got news for you. Yeah. Have mercy. Um, Question mark? If I agree with you, does that mean the segment's over? I don't. um, I think that's pretty despicable. (laughs) Oh, that feels bad, doesn't it? When Trump steals your jokes. Yeah, he was a he was a teenage edge lord. There goes the neighborhood. 
David? Mm-hmm. Sounds like the name of a kid whose parent would pay a large sum of money to be on a Division One lacrosse <laughs> team. <laughs> David? Yes. Sounds like the villain in an 80s ski comedy who is threatening to buy and shut down the fun but unprofitable local mountain resort. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> that was great. That makes a lot more sense than what I was saying. David? Yes. You will always look like a huge dick. Shut up. This stuff happens? That just struck me as really weird. <laughs> Uh, An amazing, beautiful weirdo, and I think we should all sit back and appreciate it. The liberals are making us all soft. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, listen, there absolutely is nowhere near as uh, terrifying, uh, alarming, um, uh, just like physically upsetting as uh, it is to see that happen uh, in real life, right in front of your eyes. David, mm-hmm. this sucks. I mean, listen, there was a lot of insanity. This is this is incredibly disillusioning, and this is such a freaking train wreck. Frankly, I think I came into it with such high expectations that I was a little bit let down by the lack of absolute insanity. You should get that blank, right? I don't know. It felt like it felt like when you hear about your friend taking a break in their relationship. <laughs> Good work. Woo. You don't have the right to go to Miami. Mm-hmm. David? Yeah. My career was better than yours. Uh what in the actual fuck? I mean, it, it was it was just just spectacular. I mean it was It's like all of a sudden no like, oh this is it. good. Here we go. I'd watch this. <laughs> I think that was the perfect I cannot wait to have the same conversation a year from now about the XFL. What in the actual fuck? Yo, let's do this on the show, or at least agree to it. That's amazing on about 15 levels. Okay. I mean, sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm perking up a little bit. Come down and, and, you know, it's family day and get cheap hot dogs and everybody loves hanging out, you know, and that kind of... Fireworks know, show. Yeah, exactly. The Beach Boys are going to play afterwards. And oh, the... Uh, oh, and, oh, 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 hot, hot. Yeah, Scalding yeah. I mean, hot. certainly these are the things Scalding. that incredibly successful multimillionaires go to bed brewing at the end of the night. There was a lot of winky winky on Friday is dead yeah i know it would be it would be interesting to see you know am i spending my 70s locked in the white house as the president or am i just locked in the white house full stop looking for an apartment need help finding an apartment you can't make this shit up so that's really qualified i'm sorry david it's more like i'm sorry but i'm a hugger and i like to touch people and that's what i'm gonna do david Mm -hmm. sucking harder than he's ever sucked Oh, man, that's really hard. Total don't give a fuck mode. You would think that I would just be insane. There's a 1,000% chance. Wow. Wow. It's like Larry Flynn and a hustler back in the day. Right. Yeah, what do you What do you know? I did books. Uh, see you later, man. Rest in power. David? Mm-hmm. Should we just blow this up? Um, yeah. And do something else. <laughs> um, and no. Um, I didn't see anything wrong with this. Yeah. What do you think about that? Uh, next question. What do you think about that? Um, next question. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I think it's a great question. And I think that's fascinating. What do you think about that? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah. That, to me, would be the wrong idea. Oh, no. It's it's about power, man. Yeah, and, and, and I agree. That, I mean, I, I realize that I'm not a aw shucksy sort of like Forrest Gump expert on 
Um, Should cable news be covering this live? I mean, the, the video really, I mean, the, the audio doesn't do it quite as much justice as the video does. But this is just how, this is how locker rooms go, man. Yeah. It's left us sort of searching for answers and mm. chicken with his head cut off, uh, um, mm. robotic detached British man or something. You know, it's, it's the strangest thing ever. Just Hello, darkness, my old friend. Robert. Oh, no. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. Mm-hmm. I'm Oprah. Mm-hmm. CNN says I'm terrible and mm-hmm. I'm actually a very offensive, awful person. Mm-hmm. Not a good interview at all. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of horrible controversy, hey kids, look at this. We got a sports magazine for a European billionaire who got tons and tons and tons of <laughs> diamonds, the yachts, and the Rembrandt. Oh, did I? We basically conquered the world. I mean, I might have needed a little bit we're of help. We're going to create this little franchise. Yeah, yeah. That was so simple, and yet, and we're not just going after Robert. <laughs> we're going after Oprah. Yeah, I think that's right. David? Yeah. I am having a very bad day. Scantily clad, 50 years old. This, today, um, is one of the worst days that I've had in a long time. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I will not rest. I will not rest. Do you hear me? I will not rest. I was really having the trouble of, of reconciling this, but now I think I think I get it. Um, I tell bigger lies than that every day, you know? Um, and I think that and I think that most people can sympathize. You, you should have seen what I've gotten past yeah. the NBC News censors, man. Um, we end tonight's broadcast on a personal note. Please don't do that, but... <laughs> Radio really is the theater of the mind, isn't it? Uh, no. David? Yeah. I get the handbags. I get the clothes. I, I look the part. Um, I'm, I'm not, you know, this nebbishy guy behind a desk. I'm I'm kind of, you know, somebody who who's ready to walk out onto a runway. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but it's... We're going to make Ringer-branded... T-shirts! I, I, it's going to be awesome. We're going to have Ringer... Coloring book! Ringer... Lunchbox! Ringer... Breakfast cereal! We're going to have Ringer-branded... Flamethrower! Hey, my house is on fire. Can you help? Hell no! Please help. Please help. Please help. Come right now. Hell no! <laughs> and this inconvenience is me. Brilliant asshole. Godspeed. And by the way, everybody's fired. got a big announcement about the press box this week. Yeah. I tonight announced everyone dies. Oh, yeah. Yes. Shirtless, I believe. How excited are you? <laughs> Very excited. David. Is there something wrong with that? David. Yeah. You like kind of just threatening uh, humanity at large? I, I can't hear you. Why are you treating them like a kind of high class trash read a book i am also fascinated by the donkey sauce this isn't the worst thing that's ever befallen american culture i cannot say how strenuously i disagree with that idea and i yell everyone dies as i'm jumping out the window to escape the follow-up you'll have to come through me 
people have to come through me too? Why are you totally full of donkey sauce? <laughs> Is that a word? No. David? Yeah. If you are old, I do not seek your approval. Wow. I don't care about your approval. Wow. But the truth matters. For sure. And this is the truth. You're a washed up psycho. We're wearing a misfit tuxedo. How dare you, sir? I'm not sure. <laughs> How dare you? Um, there, You know, there's no like natural law about the way to do these things. It's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I have no idea from a aliens looking down on our culture level. We are the poop. Holy moly. Very good word, yes. <laughs> this is like a president slowly dying. What did you think of it? I thought it was good. I thought it was... Uh, yeah, is the phrase world's most famous. David, does that ever not sound insulting? <laughs> we all knew this day was coming. Yeah. We want to see David squeezed into a tuxedo <laughs> with the hunched over Guy Fieri walking next to it. We want to see what that looks like. My God. Are we on extremely safe ground now to say that even if Guy Fieri killed someone in cold blood, I support this guy, Fieri. Yeah, great news. I've got a... I've got a chateau or a, you know, I've got a palace rented for us in, in London. Uh, wow. It's a really great beachfront property. Scary. The, the, the whole thing just feels like the most unforgivable sin. I love that. <laughs> if you want to be stoic about it, then yes. David? Let's see where we go. Yeah, here we go is right. David, this one is from the world of communicable diseases. Oh my gosh. David Shoemaker ate a bag of <laughs> with a knife and fork. Dude, don't mention me by name. Sounds fun. That is so bad. That'd be that'd be great. Dude. You're not going to get me you don't you're not gonna get me at my best when you're looking for related anything. I'm not sure I even understand what that means. Yes. Like, I just want to let you guys know that uh, I had nothing to do with... And I thought that was an incredibly, incredibly effective uh, use of uh, political theater, uh, political art. And I'm a lifelong fan of... To deprogram myself. David, if he was wandering around Brooklyn. Abandon hope. Please do not. Continuing public makeover of an inarticulate, idiotic. That to me is something I can identify with. When you're kind of nodding along. Yeah, I think that's right. No matter what incredibly dumb thing just came out of my mouth. You're a really old dude, an old white dude who did. And I can't really hear you with this earphone, by the way. It's just people are crazy. <laughs> no bullshit. We see that. How do I get that person's job? <laughs> but in a way, that's what scares me, is what's in his heart. Get this move. David Shoemaker is on assignment today. David, don't be a smart ass. I'll knock you the fuck out, bro. 
Whoa. <laughs> uh, get this motherfucker out of here. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, David Shoemaker is on assignment today. I guess it's fortuitous. Fucked, yeah. Do you have a sense of why David Shoemaker is on assignment today? Well, who cares? What, what's that going to do? Right. Really, what is the point? Why stage this? I do love human sadness. <laughs> this is this is the uh, department for you. Pretty yucky. <laughs> and and breaking David Shoemaker doesn't have shit. <laughs> Filthy-mouthed wife guy. Love your name.